Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Welcome to the New Books Network. Confounding, exhilarating, and contagious. Emotions matter, and so does applying emotional intelligence. Welcome to Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight, the podcast where emotions rule. Whatever the topic, how do hearts and minds collide? Find out with your host, a college professor turned globetrotting EQ entrepreneur. His mission? Each week, Dan joins prominent authors in decoding how emotions drive outcomes and make people tick. Now, on to the show. Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining me for the 134th episode of my podcast, Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight. The series appears here on the New Books Network, which has as its motto, sharing knowledge so people can thrive. Today's topic is Ways to Accelerate Your Creativity. I'm joined by Adam Kingle. He is the author of Sparking Success, Why Every Leader Needs to Develop a Creative Mindset. The publisher is Kogan Page. Adam is a speaker, educator, advisor, and author who's an expert on leadership, creativity, innovation, and adaptability. He's an adjunct faculty member at the UCL School of Management and at Holt International Business School. He's also an instructor at the University of Cambridge and at the institutions of higher education in Sweden and Ireland. Welcome to the show, Adam. Thanks very much for having me. Absolutely. So uh, give us a quick overview of the book, and then we'll, we'll plunge into the details, as it were. Sure. Well, the book is uh, looking at ha- um, ways in which people accelerate their creativity in artistic organizations, which is my original background. I come from a theater and entertainment background. And when I started working with corporates, I realized that a lot of those ways in which people worked in the arts organizations could enhance the creative quotient, if you will, in those corporations, because they're really just uh, little ways in which people do things differently, how they lead conversations differently, how they might lead a team differently, how they might brainstorm differently. So I wanted to apply the arts to business in order to improve adaptability, inspiration, and innovation. Okay. Well, we're going to have a good conversation. I studied theater at uh, Oxford back in the day. In fact, theater of the absurd, Harold Pinter and Beckett and all those sorts of folks. How brilliant. Yeah, it was fun. It was good stuff. Um, so... You notice in the book that to manage as a verb is to control. What are the emotional implications of that? And I ask it particularly because you know at one point that at birth or early in life, most of us might qualify as creative geniuses. And by the time you get to age 25, uh, that uh, portion has been severely whittled back. So control, what, what emotionally does that do to us and do to people and companies? Yeah, well, because we equate management with control, maybe not consciously, perhaps unconsciously, but as a result, we we often are more comfortable saying no or yes, but uh, to our people, to ask them to stay in their lane. And then at the same time, so many leaders of global organizations say that creativity is a top priority for them, but they shouldn't be surprised (laughs) that they don't get any of that creative output from their people because we have been consciously or unconsciously trained to think of management as control. Instead of management as 
helping us be more relevant today than we were yesterday. We're helping our people uh, be more adaptable or think of new solutions uh, to new problems. So yes, I think uh, children are creative geniuses and we always have that capability, but the way in which we've been taught and the way in which we've been led represses that. Okay. Um, you are right. I mean, I, I've read the statistics. It's appalling how many leaders say, yes, on the one hand, innovation's the, the lifeblood of the company. Uh, and on the other hand, boy, we're really terrible at this, but they <laughs> don't seem to be able to turn that around. How yeah. many companies that you might know of have something like a, I guess I'll call it a chief creative or creativity officer uh, or any other means that you're seeing out there to uh, try to turn that predicament around. It, it is becoming more common where you might see chief creative officer or chief innovation officer. But actually, I'm slightly troubled by that title. Because if you have someone in the organization with such a title, then everyone else sort of can, can <laughs> give up all responsibility or accountability <laughs> for creativity and innovation. I, what I hope leaders instead do is think about how do we improve the creative capacity of the entire organization and not just try to hire for it with some kind of uh, individual who's going to make 100% of the difference. Oh, no, I, I love that answer. In fact, I, I admit that probably in asking it, my real thought was <laughs> we, we need someone to protect the creative people who do emerge so that they don't get driven out of the organization or give right. up in frustration. Right. So so you have all these exercises in the book, and, and I, I wrote down a number of them because I, I really was tickled by them and, and uh, intrigued by what kind of uh, responses you might have gotten or some of these might be exercises you didn't lead but had a chance to observe or or who knows where these questions will go. Um, so one of them is you say, ask yourself as a leader, uh, what is my leadership role? What, what is my purpose? Um, I'd like to think it's to nurture creativity in part. I'm curious what kind of answers that line of inquiry, self-inquiry has, has drawn out, you know, answers that you applaud, answers that appalled you, uh, kind of answers that typically emerge, the ones that are most constructive. Take my question any direction you want that's fruitful. Sure. Well, I, I, when we first enter the workforce and we are an individual contributor, I think we would say the purpose of our job is to hit certain KPIs, right? To produce certain outputs. Uh, I hope it would be more, but unfortunately for most of us, you know, that's that's simply what it is. But once we assume leadership positions, we are responsible for living the values, being stewards of the culture, for helping people identify and live their purpose, to excite our people to exceptional performance. But unfortunately for too many leaders, when you ask them that same question, even when they're very senior. What is your purpose? What is your mission? What is leadership for you? They're still saying, well, to achieve my objectives, right? To hit the numbers. But leadership is so much more if we want to make our world of work, not just more gratifying, but more productive. So I'm thinking of the book, for example, um, Firms of Endearment, which demonstrated that those companies that are led by people who have a strong lived sense of purpose and mission actually outperform their competitors and the market by a huge factor, by a factor of 10. Um, and so you know, leadership, uh, purpose-driven leadership is certainly part and parcel of being more creative, but it's also just helping to make an organization that's more human and paradoxically actually more productive. Yeah, no, I, uh, that's great. More human would be good. I was afraid that the answer you got way too often was merely right back to the numbers and to the shareholders exclusively. There's a lot of debate obviously going on about uh, moving on to stakeholders primarily or including certainly employees and and uh, customers. How much mm -hmm. do 
How much does the experience of customers and employees come up in response to that question about purpose? Well, it comes up more often, but it certainly can come up a lot more. So, so the idea of the circular economy and uh, and and stakeholders, not just shareholders, is becoming more common. the The issue still is that uh, leaders don't necessarily know what that implies. What does that mean? How would you lead differently? Or is it simply telling a a, a good story? But you know, if we're going to serve our customers better, then surely also you know we we have to do right by our employees. So they're excited about serving customers. As a matter of fact, there, there are a number of different um, sociological studies which show that if you help um, your, your employees to understand why they do what they do and the impact of that, of course, the customers benefit and customer yeah. satisfaction rates increase and so on. So these things are all uh, are connected and correlated. But I think often, unfortunately, leaders think of it as a zero-sum game. Like I can either pay attention and honor the customer or the shareholder or the employee versus thinking of these as all part of an ecosystem. Okay. Yeah, no, I, I think that's legit. Uh, I used to be director of executive communications for a Fortune 200 company, $6 billion enterprise. And one of the things I really liked about the CEO, who was actually a pretty great guy, was we would do these monthly breakfast meetings with employees and uh, he'd let it pretty much fly and they could raise the questions they wanted to. But you have in your book some questions that I think a lot of people should be asking of the people on their staff or department and so forth, and I don't think they get asked nearly enough. Uh, I'm referring to specifically the questions, are you fulfilled and happy? And are you encouraged you are on the right path? Or maybe I'm helping you be on the right path or mm -hmm. helping you realize there should be a better path. What kind of answers have you gotten there? What kind of outcomes have you seen that are heartening or maybe even a good uh you know, build out from those questions and the answers that ensue. Yeah. Well, I first identified the, the, the this kinds of questions like, are you on the right path? Am I helping you as your manager to be on the right path? That came from my observing and interviewing um, one of the heads of engineering for Disney Imagineering. Imagineers are the people who design and build the rides yep. in, in, the, in the different theme parks. So these are highly creative people, highly sought after people, highly specialized people. Um, and th this head of engineering was saying, look, ultimately, my job is to help people be closer to their purpose. And if I can do that, then I'm also closer in terms of my understanding and ability to fulfill their development needs, um, their needs within the team, what they expect from me. But that all starts with a higher level question, which is, what are you about? You know, What do you want to accomplish? Why do you choose to do it here? Then yeah. how I can help you makes a lot more sense. Yeah, no. Well, why do I want to do it here? Yeah, that's, that's good. Um, let's switch over to the customers. Uh, one of your exercises is how are we trying to reach them? But actually what I liked even better was how in the world we're we going to describe them because hopefully in describing them, they get more empathetic regarding uh, their needs, their mm -hmm. wants, their dreams. Um, you know, wh what have you, what have you learned or observed or uh, gotten out of people when you, you've posed that kind of question? Well, I, I guess some some of the the uh, one of the most interesting stories that I had was when I was studying, uh, looking at leaders in graphic arts, right, or or people who use arts and imagery to really help propel either their leadership or engage their people or provide new direction. And and one of the organizations was a, a, a FMCG company that produced things like fragrances and cosmetics, etc. And what they realized is well. Do we really understand what customers, what our customers want? Or have we been assuming that the answers to what they want today are the same answers that we've been giving ourselves five years ago, 10 years ago? So let's let's use 
uh, not just design thinking and ask our customers, but try to use imagery to draw out the unconscious and make that conscious, right? To help bring out more subtle ideas and not just obvious answers. So that was a really interesting mix of sort of Renaissance thinking to bring together concepts with art, with transformation. It actually completely changed how they define themselves as a division within this company. And they became hugely more successful in terms of their turnover, uh, their revenue as a result of it. Huh. I, I suddenly had flashing in my mind as you were talking the idea of an exercise where you took uh, maybe a small handful of appropriate historical paintings and put them in front of them and said, what does this suggest about mm-hmm. who they're trying to serve or, or how they could better lead? And uh, yep. you'd, have to, you'd have to pick the, the, the paintings with uh, care, obviously. But um, huh. yeah, yeah, well, you're right. But the beautiful thing about that is, again, it bring, makes the unconscious conscious with, with, with those yeah. kinds of exercises. Sometimes when we try to hit these kinds of deep questions directly, people freeze or they can't think of answers that we haven't heard a million times. The oblique approach is, is, is often more useful with these types of questions. Yeah, no, well, Emily Dickinson, the poet said, tell the truth, but tell it slant, lest everyone go blind. I love so, that. <laughs> yeah, so I, I like the oblique. That's good. <laughs> Speaking of that, in fact, because it's kind of a one-off exercise, at one point you said, uh, have them imagine, it's kind of this thing where you combining columns in the diagram or the exercise. And they're supposed to imagine that someone else launched the product or had the new campaign. I think in some cases you even had artists thrown in like, you know, if Salvador Dali was, you know, say launching your perfume, you know, how might he do it? Um, That was really one of my favorite exercises. Uh, I'm hoping and curious if there was some, some fruitful outcome from that. It, it, yeah, it was, and and actually, originally the the stimulus for that the the exercise that I proposed comes from the culinary arts of all places. But what I observed uh, is that a lot of highly successful chefs, when they're creating new dishes, don't create the dish from scratch. It's not like a wholly new concept. But what makes it innovative is that they combine existing ideas or <laughs> ingredients or approaches in different ways. So, for example, they might combine an ingredient from the East, like wasabi, to a very traditional Western ingredient like mashed potato, right? So both of those things already existed, but it creates a new, a new innovation, a new dish. New way of putting them together. Yeah. A new way of putting them together. So what I thought is, well, let's say, for example, if you were an office supply company and you wanted to create an innovative lamp, well, you could just ask your people over and over again, you know, give me ideas for an innovative lamp. And you may or may not get good ideas. So how do you stimulate the conversation a little bit differently? So you could ask questions like, as you said, well, how would Salvador Dali construct this lamp? So now we get out of our own identity and the own precedent of how we've answered this question in the past. So maybe you would say, well, if Dali were you know, designing the lamp, maybe the stem of the lamp would coil in on itself and loop around, uh, you know, and it would be very abstract and absurdist even. Okay, now we have a completely different idea. Or you, you might say, well, how would Jackson Pollock design the lamp? And so now you have all these crazy colors and and spatter patterns and and all kinds of other things which you may not have, you know, uh, identified. Um, So it's that idea of approaching the problem by putting on different lenses, putting on a different set of glasses. And that just kind of frees you up um, to come up with different answers, even to questions you may have been uh, asking yourself over and over again. 
I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50 percent off you know i like that a lot just last night i was watching a movie about uh someone brought in as a new creative director for the house of dior christian dior and uh he was he was dutch suddenly in a french environment didn't even know the language particularly mm. well at the start and uh he went back to look at the designs that christian dior had in 1947 when he opened the place and said, well, the world's changed a lot, but uh, femininity, you know, has and has not changed in some measure. And what can I glean from them and what's changed and how would I review it? And kind of did a mishmash almost of taking Christian Dior 1947 and a lot of time spent in uh, various art museums in Paris, particularly contemporary ones, and uh, came up with something very different. Mm-hmm, so um, mm-hmm. brilliant it, it, it can work yeah uh, another one i really loved um was host a failure party mm-hmm. uh because you know you have to create some safe space for for innovators and not every innovation is going to work uh, i'm a poet and you know sometimes you you write a poem and you think it's really good and you put it in the drawer and lo and behold you pull it out the next day or a week later and um you know maybe it's not so good Right. So these these things do happen. Um, so I really love that idea. Who who's really gone to town with a, a failure party, and how do they pull it off best? Well, I, I've hosted them myself when I when I've led Wonderful. departments and enterprises. And what's great is that a it gives people permission to experiment. And yes, you might have to create the bounds of the the uh, of what's acceptable in terms of experimentation. But too often, uh, the organizational culture is well, it has to be one hundred percent successful, or there's yeah. a stigma, or even worse, you'll be fired. So how do you encourage learning? Well, you host a failure party, say every month, every six months, let's get together, you know, have a tipple, have some nibbles, and everyone share every, something you've tried over the last, say, six months that really didn't work. Now what you're saying is it's okay to try and fail. And it's useful learning because you don't want anyone else to make the same mistake. Uh, so we want to iterate and we want everyone to learn from one another's mistakes. Um, and this is very common in, in our, of course, artistic organizations who don't assume that the first rehearsal of a play, for example, is going to be a triumph. You're going yeah. to try some things and they're going to fail spectacularly. But the reason that you finally get a hit come opening night is that you've tried a given moment on stage a hundred different ways and you learn each time. Sure. No, there's a term that I like a lot, ROM, return on mistakes. Yeah. Um, And and what's your ROM rate? Uh, That said, I I suddenly remembered uh, going to a play at Oxford that wasn't so good. And at the intermission, I heard two men talking once of the other. You know, sometimes earnestness isn't enough. Yeah. (laughs) 
<laughs> just, that's true. That's true. They were, they were trying awfully hard, but it just wasn't yeah. coming together. But maybe <laughs> maybe it would on another night. Hey, um, I, absolutely, and I also yeah. think you you see it you see it in some of our <clears throat> most successful and celebrated companies. You know, I think uh, uh, Eric Schmidt, I think, right, the former CEO of, of Google Alphabet, said, you know, one of the reasons we're more successful than perhaps some of our competitors is that we try to have more at bats than any other company. And I think that, you know, that, so that just demonstrates, you know, keep, try more often. I, I think um, uh, Jeff Bezos said something very similar. Okay. Well, one, one more here before we conclude um, that someone's supposed to tell this a story or a story from their life to someone else. And the next person's supposed to say it back, kind of like a extended version of that old childhood game telephone, where you whisper a word around the, the ring of friends and comes back in a very muted uh, convoluted, different sort of way. So I, I think the point of the exercise in part was to induce empathy, but also see how that person interpreted, embellished, missed certain key details. Um, have you seen this work or how how have you made this this work so that it's not only the storytelling, but the lessons that come from the exercise. Yeah, I mean, this worked. Uh, th- this worked really well, even for you know very large, very corporate environment like Unilever, right? The uh, the, yep. the consumer goods company. So they did exercise like this. And you're right. Yes, it builds empathy, but it also helps you identify well what's important. Maybe you don't realize when you tell a story, what were the important facts? Well, if someone repeats back the story, all of a sudden you realize, okay, that's what they heard. That's yeah. what's important. Um, and, and that's useful too when doing even brainstorming activities to have someone first start to say, well, here's what we might do. And then have someone not even uh, uh, add to it, but just try to repeat it. And as you, as you indicated, just by repeating it, certain things are embellished, certain ideas are, are, are repressed. And then you start to get a sense of what the team is valuing in the story we're telling one another. Yeah, that's good. Um, I don't want to end without giving you a chance to uh, throw in something I might have missed from the book or a, a learning, an anecdote from uh, uh, your days in theater and artistic life that, that might help, uh, you know, yeah. help readers. Well, then, no, thank you for the opportunity. I, I guess one, two of the qualities that I think came up the most uh, for me when exploring creativity was it kept reminding me of childhood. Right. Yeah. So if you think of childhood, there's there's idealism, there's honesty, there's curiosity, there's wonder. And these are often the qualities that we look for in 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 in, in enhancing the creativity of the creative capacity of our people. But that's up to leaders to create the environment in which that can thrive. So how do we build in a little bit more curiosity, a little bit more play, and that that can be the source of crucial insights and skills? So that humanistic approach. Um, it represents actually not just a way to enhance creativity, but I think is starting to indicate the evolution of leadership itself. Huh. And now, now I'm thinking about uh, leaders who, when they first join an organization, should dare to uh, not only tell a story where they maybe failed, but also sh- share some things from their childhood to personalize themselves and maybe begin to put that spirit of, of youthful wonderment back into organizations. That's lovely. Yeah, all, all, all good stuff. Well, I want to thank you, Adam, so much for being my guest today. This has been episode 134, Ways to Accelerate Your Creativity. Uh, my guest is Adam Kingle. He is the author of Sparking Success, Why Every Leader Needs to Develop a Creative Mindset. If you enjoyed today's show, please give it a rating or review on iTunes. Finally, I'd like to conclude every episode with an appropriate epigram. In this case, I filched one from George Bernard Shaw, who wrote, use a glass mirror to see your face. You use works of art to see your soul. Until next time, take care and be well.